0: Welcome to the latest episode of Comic Book Physics released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month, we're taking a look at different forms of radiation, with particular attention to the cosmic rays that are such a big part of the Fantastic Four's origin. And we just want to look at the question, can radiation cause superpowers or create superheroes? Well, first thing you have to do is define what radiation is. So what is it? Well, radiation is just any type of energetic particle that could have been emitted from a variety of sources. Sometimes it's because nuclei are unstable, sometimes it's because some sort of collision has occurred, but there is some kind of source for that radiation. And it really all comes down to history's most famous footnote, E equals Mc squared. It is possible to convert energy into mass and vice versa. So let's take a look at radiation in terms of the first way it was discovered and the first identified radiation that is the radiation that comes from unstable nuclei. So what makes the nucleus of an atom unstable? Well, we have four forces in nature. There's the electromagnetic force, the gravitational force, the strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force. The nucleus of an atom is composed of protons and neutrons, although those are in turn composed of quarks. A neutron has two down and one up quark, and a proton has two up quarks and a down quark. If the electromagnetic and gravitational forces that we see day to day were the only forces in nature, then the electrostatic repulsion between the protons would tear the nucleus apart, as like charges repel. Instead, the weak and strong nuclear forces hold things together, overpowering the repulsion of the electromagnetic force. The nuclear forces only have a limited range, though. The strong nuclear force only reaches across the size of the nucleus itself, while the weak nuclear force can reach throughout the size of the atom. So different arrangements of the quarks within the protons and neutrons need different amounts of energies, and sometimes the same number of protons and neutrons can be arranged in more than one way. If one of those ways needs less energy to hold together than another, then sometimes the particles in the higher energy state can rearrange themselves to the lower energy state and release that energy as radiation. They can't spontaneously go from the low energy state to the higher energy state. In order to make that happen, you have to add the required energy to the system. So that's one way that radiation can be emitted. If it's just that pure massless energy, it could just be the nucleus rearranging itself. You can also run into issues if you have too many protons and neutrons and nothing external to hold them together. If a nucleus gets too large, then the strong nuclear force can't reach all the way across, and the electromagnetic force becomes much more significant as the extremes in the nucleus start pulling themselves apart. And that's one of the reasons that nuclei with more protons that end up higher on the periodic table get less stable. Now that can be mitigated with some sort of extremely powerful outside force keeping the pressure up. As far as we could tell, in nature, that only exists in a neutron star, where the gravitational pressure is so intense that the star essentially forms one gigantic nucleus with nothing but neutrons. That's neutronium. It's actually a degenerate gas in the center, which is incredibly dense. It's literally a single nucleus that's made of nothing but neutrons, and that does have a dense outer shell keeping the whole thing together. In other cases, you can actually find that instead of just ejecting a couple of small particles as the quarks in in the nucleus rearrange themselves, it's more efficient to split into two entirely different nuclei of more similar size to each other. Now we will transform one type of quark into another or split into two completely different nuclei. So the first three types of radiation that were identified were originally called alpha, beta, and gamma radiation. These all exist as a result of natural decay, and not necessarily as a result of collision. Alpha radiation is the lowest energy of the three, as those who discovered them didn't quite understand what they were composed of, because our understanding of the nucleus just wasn't advanced enough yet to identify those particles, so they just took the first three letters of the Greek alphabet and arranged them in order of energy. So the alphas have the lowest energy of the three, and they're a result of a nucleus ejecting a helium nucleus as part of its decay process. So two protons and two neutrons are shot out from that nucleus. They may or may not capture excess electrons along the way, but they are really not harmful to humans. They can be easily blocked by a single sheet of paper, they do not penetrate the skin, and they don't have enough energy in them to distort DNA. The next highest energy is the beta radiation, and that's got a more moderate energy levels. This is the result of an unstable nucleus increasing stability by changing a quark into a different type of quark that will release either an electron or a positron, which is the antimatter electron, along with the corresponding neutrino. If it's an electron that gets ejected, then it's also harmless, since a regular electron at these energy levels cannot penetrate skin, it cannot distort DNA, it's just another electron hanging around. If it's a positron, then there's a slightly higher risk, because it can annihilate with a matter electron and produce two gamma rays, which we'll get to in more detail in a moment. So this kind of radioactive decay actually happens all the time, and it's the basis of carbon dating. We know that there's a certain isotope or a certain carbon atom, given a specific number of neutrons, that occurs in about the same proportions throughout nature. And that also means it occurs in those proportions throughout all living tissue, since we are carbon-based. When this decays through beta radiation, then those carbon nuclei become nitrogen nuclei. And nitrogen does not have the same chemical properties as carbon. Living tissues then recognize that the chemicals in them are not working the way they're supposed to and end up repairing it. They could produce a new molecule. They can sometimes, in some cases, swap out the nitrogen nucleus for a carbon nucleus if a carbon one is available, and there are ways to repair that damage and keep going. That's in living tissue, though. Once dead, this repair system stops functioning. So archaeologists and scientists can measure how much of this beta radiation is being emitted from dead tissue, and use that information to figure out how long it's been dead, because they look at what proportion of the carbon atoms have decayed through this process, knowing how long it takes half a sample to decay. So they can use that to get a very accurate read of how long something has been dead within a certain range of years, because the half-life or the time it takes for half the carbon to decay is a few thousand years. If it's too long, there's not enough carbon left to get an accurate read. If it's too short, it's hard to distinguish that from the naturally occurring levels. So for things that are old enough to fit within a very specific window of age, carbon dating actually works very well. The third of the original types of identified radiation is gamma radiation. That's essentially pure energy in the form of a photon of light. This does have enough energy to distort DNA. So of these three naturally occurring types, this is the most dangerous. But as with carbon decay, our bodies can repair damage from a small amount of these. So gamma radiation is really only dangerous if emission rates get high enough that they distort our DNA faster than our bodies can repair them. And they've got more energy than x-rays. Nuclear fission was discovered later, and this is where, instead of just ejecting a helium nucleus, a larger nucleus is ejected, such as in the nuclear fission of uranium or plutonium, which is the basis of a lot of nuclear weapons again, this happens to some degree in nature, It's a little more hazardous than gamma radiation just because it does give out gamma rays as well as higher energy neutrons, which can cause collisions and other energies. It's primarily dangerous when you've got an artificially created situation, such as nuclear weapons where they take large amounts of uranium, filter it out based on how much of each isotope is present, and then turn that into smaller amounts of uranium that are all the same isotope and thereby make the odds of having this set off a chain reaction much, much more likely. If this were to happen in nature, it would have happened long ago when the rocks in question formed. So then what are cosmic rays, those that created the Fantastic Four, at least in the comic book pages? Well, cosmic rays are real radiation. They're comparable to gamma rays, but they have even higher energies. Photons fall on the electromagnetic spectrum, and depending on how much energy, we classify them in different ways. The lowest energy are the long wave radio waves, then the short wave radios. As we get a little more energy, we get into microwaves, then into infrared radiation, then to visible light, then ultraviolet is the type of radiation, or at least the first type of electromagnetic radiation that might be able to distort DNA and cause cancer. So microwaves don't have enough energy to do that. But ultraviolet radiation at the high end of the ultraviolet spectrum can do that. Not all UV rays can, but some certainly can. After UV, we have X-rays. From X-rays, we go to gamma rays, and then from gamma to cosmic rays. They've got tremendous amounts of energy in each cosmic ray. And in fact, we still don't completely understand how they're created. They're named cosmic rays because they come from space or the cosmos. We haven't found a single naturally occurring phenomenon that will produce them on the surface of the Earth. So they may be artifacts of particles flying near but not into a black hole, so they gain a tremendous amount of kinetic energy and then collide with something. It may be an after effect of a supernova, or it may be something completely different that we just haven't identified and don't understand yet. But these can be dangerous because it's not just a single particle. they have enough energy to become a particle shower. So when they hit the atmosphere or a living tissue and interact with it, they have so much energy that they can create other particles. It's doing that e equals MC squared in reverse, turning the energy into mass. So one cosmic ray can hit the atmosphere. And we end up with a shower of particles that can cover quite a range. In fact, my old university, the University of Alberta, has been running the ALTA project, where local high schools can put particle detectors on their roofs just to track these cosmic ray showers. So we'll have a big influx of the naturally occurring radiation at specific times of day, measured at various points throughout the province and particularly in the city of Edmonton. Now, Edmonton's in the middle of a prairie with relatively low population density. We build out instead of up. Geographically speaking, Edmonton and Calgary have the largest surface areas of any cities in North America, so we get a pretty good spread. And even that's just a fraction of the shower caused by cosmic rays. So they don't have a huge impact on people by the time these cosmic ray showers hit the surface of the Earth, just because they have spread out. So instead of being hit by one very high-energy particle, there's a very large region that's hit by a large number of smaller particles with lower energy. So when you're exposed to cosmic rays through the filter of an atmosphere, they are not particularly dangerous. If you're exposed to them in space, that's different. Because when you're in space, there's a couple of things. First of all, you don't necessarily have that atmosphere filtering it from you. And second, depending on how far out you go, the Earth's magnetic field may not offer as much protection as it naturally does. The nuclear reactions of the sun produce a lot of radiation, especially charged particles and neutrinos. Now neutrinos barely interact with anything. So they're not a radiation risk under most circumstances. The Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, out at CERN, moved the experiments when they built that new ring relative to where they used to be, basically rotated all the experiment positions about 45 degrees around the ring, because they realized that they would actually be producing enough neutrino radiation to be a hazard for local communities in the way they were oriented. That isn't a risk for other kinds of particles, because they can put beam stops there that Are large enough and dense enough to absorb everything else that comes out, but the Earth itself may or may not be able to absorb a neutrino. So there's just no feasible way to produce what they call a beam stop for neutrinos. Instead, they repositioned the detectors so that where the neutrinos leave the surface of the Earth, they're going through unpopulated areas that CERN actually owns and controls, so that they can make sure that nobody is exposed to hazardous levels of neutrino radiation. So the neutrinos from the sun are not a threat. The charged particles from the sun would be if the earth's magnetic field didn't shield us and route them around the planet, although some do get funneled into the poles just depending on their initial trajectories, and that's where the aurora borealis and aurora australis come from. So what exactly can the radiation do to our bodies? Well, if it has enough energy, so the energy of, you know, high-end UV or higher, in this context mostly gamma and cosmic rays, and if we get hit with enough quantities of these, It can cause permanent DNA damage while cooking the tissue. So, microwave exposure can be dangerous, not because it causes cancer, but because it just cooks the tissues of your body. Now, the DNA damage caused by this ionizing radiation will be random, and it's very unlikely that it's going to change the DNA even in two cells in exactly the same way. So, in the real world, if Fried, Sue, Ben, and Johnny got hit by a burst of cosmic rays without proper shielding, instead of returning to Earth with the powers of the Fantastic Four, They'd have come back with a variety of burns and cancerous growths. Similarly, an irradiated spider would not create a permanent boost in Peter Parker's natural radiation levels. Whatever it did, it would have done in that moment, changing his body chemistry but not making him permanently radioactive. So this is not a viable mechanism for creating superpowers. It's probably just going to kill you. If you want to rewrite DNA to create superpowers, you won't be using radiation. You'll be using a custom-created retrovirus To rewrite the DNA in all cells of the body the same way, and then using something to stimulate the growth of those cells to reflect what the new DNA is programmed to do. But in any event, that's what we have to say about cosmic rays and other radiation. So join us again next month and the last Wednesday of every month as we discuss a different topic of physics in the context of comic books. Suggestions for future topics can be sent to Bureau42Podcasts at gmail.com, as always. And finally,